welcome to hey great shot this is the great shot podcast brought to you by cracked rackets my name's alex gruskin joining me on today's podcast he has been upgraded to the co-pilot chair he is the Riker to my Jean-Luc Picard I hope you know your Star Trek references Jamie because there are going to be a lot of them today it is Cracked Rackets writer Jamie McDonald Jamie hey great shot thank you uh, just glad to be a part of the temporary promotion here and uh, ready to jump in we got a lot to discuss if Rothman could ever go a week without getting on a plane he would come on this podcast more often but the guy is just a world traveler I think now he's in Wisconsin he heads back to California and then he's yeah yeah he's seen a little bit of the world you know I think you guys both start work next week you know not that, oh, yeah. yeah not that this isn't a job but those nine to five jobs as well uh so it'll be fun. You'll, I think the schedule will stabilize, and you'll see this podcast is actually a great way to uh, get off some post work takes and whatnot. So hopefully, you know, we'll we'll keep you ha- we'll keep bringing you on. Would love to. Would love <laughs> to be a part. Yeah, that's my long way of saying welcome back to the show. But okay, before we talk about what was probably. You know, those quarterfinals were really good. Oh, I don't know. All right, quick hot take before we start. Better round, quarterfinals or semifinals? Oh, okay. Uh, uh, I think you got court, quarters just because of the number of matches that were high quality. Well, so are you going to say Anderson and Isner wasn't high quality? I mean, I think, all right, Djokovic, Nadal, and Del Potro, Djokovic cancel each other out because they were both just the most elite level of tennis you will see on tour. Yeah. But yeah. then, yeah, but then you're right. Anderson, Isner, you got that in Rayo Nitsch, Isner. And then you exactly. had the, the bonus, uh, yeah, the bonus of Fed as well um, mm-hmm. going down, and then obviously, you know, Djokovic just walloping Nishikori, still a high level of tennis. So yeah. yeah, the quarterfinals, yeah, just because there were more matches, but this semi, the fact that it's a conversation, you know, speaks to how good these last two rounds of tennis have been. Uh, we've been, you know, so fortunate to get to see them. Before we get into our breakdowns of the men's semifinal matches, we, uh, you know, I got to do a little bit of housekeeping again. We are right near the finish line. If there's anything in Wimbledon you want to catch up on, if you want to see how these guys got to this part of the tournament, go to our website, CrackedRackets.com. All of the action will keep you up to date. We also have updates about the Challenger Tour, the Futures Tour. Uh, You know, If you missed anything in college tennis or you just want to go back or you want to follow those college players on the Futures Tour, check out our content there. Obviously, you got to follow our social media accounts. Great jokes from Jamie on the Twitter account. Ariza does his best with the Instagram. He's not that funny, but he's very handsome, so give him a break. Um, and yeah, obviously, rate, review, subscribe to the Great Shot Podcast as well as the Cracked Interviews Podcast. If you like what you've been hearing you know, throughout this week, we've tried to do a recap after each round of Wimbledon on the men's single side has completed. You know, subscribe to our pod. We talk about a lot of other great events throughout the year, so you know we'll keep this coverage coming to you. We would appreciate if you stick around, not only for the Grand Slams, but for the rest of this season as well. But okay, with that, Jamie, let's talk about these semifinal matches because you had two marathon matches, and it's unbelievable that this semifinal round, despite only having two matches, carried out. You know, was played over a two-day course as opposed to just the one-day semifinal round. And we'll talk about the implications of that lack of rest on both of these players later on in the podcast. But we have to start with the marathon match itself. 
you know, in our quarterfinal podcast, you, me, Rothman, we talked about how this match was going to be a couple of big servers going at it, and we wondered if there was ever going to be a break of serve. Of course, we're talking about number eight seed Kevin Anderson, 7-6, 6-7, 6-7, 6-4, 26-24, semifinal win over number nine seed John Isner. I mean, Jamie, I don't even know where to begin with this match. It, it took a long time. Sure did. And I'll tell you where we need to start. I believe I was the only one when we were talking the conversation with Anderson. <laughs> so I think that's point number one. Well, why, do you think you got, why do you think you got brought back on instead of Rothman? Yeah, fair enough. Maybe I'm just right, and that's why. Exactly. So, you know, did it play out as you thought it would? You know, you talked about Anderson having those advantages, you you know, a little bit better of a mover, um, a little bit more consistent from the ground strokes, can hurt you in other ways than just his serve. And that's not to say Isner can't, you know, serve and volley well, but it's really his game's all around that first serve. And so did it play out as you expected? Let's look at some of the stats from this match because it certainly deserves more than just a brief summary. No disrespect, Jamie. I'm sure you're ready to break it down here. But you look at those things. First serve percentage, both guys over 70%. Isner clocking in at 75%. Anderson, 71%. Uh, both guys are winning over 75% of their first serve points. Anderson, 78%. Er, sorry, Isner, 78%. Anderson, 84%. You want to hear something crazy about this match, though? Isner hit 291 first serves in total. That is nuts. You know how coaches say go out and serve 100 balls a day? He served 300 balls in a match. First serves alone, exactly. That's not including the second serves, and he hit 73 second serves in this match, only converts 48% of his second serve points, and I think that's a stat we have to key in on And when we're looking at the breakdown, you know, especially in that fifth set as it wore on. I just feel like Anderson did a much better job getting into the Isner service game, you know, putting in returns deep, taking that second serve of Isner's early, not letting Isner get the angle on him, and I think that's really, you know, 26-24, the margins are so thin. But you look at it, I think Anderson just did a little bit of a better job returning. He, you know, he was willing to last in the point a little bit longer. Another stat you want to key in on, Isner makes 59 unforced errors, which honestly, in a five-set match that went this long, not an unreasonable count for him. I have to say, I think that's a pretty good margin, especially considering he hit 129 winners. I think when you're plus 70 in the winner unforced error count, you can usually rely on winning the match, you know, count on winning the match. But But to Anderson's credit, 118 winners, 24 unforced errors. That is remarkable. That's an unbelievable ratio. Yeah, that's what I was about to point to next is, you know, just keeping, I mean, keeping your head that far above water for that entire match is nuts. Um, and I think what really helped him, and this is what I think showed the most, and this could contribute to the fact that Anderson, you know, didn't have very many unforced errors because 
once you get in a rally, you know, with Isner, yeah, maybe he pops a, a winner, but that doesn't count against your unforced errors. Most of the time, especially in that fifth set, if Anderson could keep the ball on the court, he was just going to outlast Isner in a ground stroke rally, and that's what just started wearing him down. Um, and so, I, yeah, I mean, that ratio is just incredible for Anderson. That's absolutely how he got the job done. And another thing you look at, you talk about wearing Isner down. Isner covers more total distance in this match. Goes 15,701 feet. Uh, you know, that's right around three miles, which for the big man is a lot of movement. Anderson, 14,576.3 feet, still a ton of movement for him. But, you know, you look at distance per point, it's really not that bad. Isner, 27.6 feet. Anderson, 25.6 feet. To put those numbers in context, compared to Nadal and Djokovic, in, you know, Nadal Djokovic do go 10-8 in the fifth, but Nadal goes 20,971.3 feet, Djokovic 19,854.5, and those guys are both averaging over 50 feet in terms of distance per point. So, you know, like you mentioned, these were relatively short points. Both guys, the second they had a chance, tried to move in. Isner, to his credit, 70% conversion rate on 109 attempts at the net and winning 60, or 76%. Uh, points at the net. Anderson goes a tidy 32 of 50. We've talked about it. Going to the net is not exactly his go-to move. Uh, But as you mentioned it, Anderson really did wear Isner down over the course of that fifth set. And you look at the total points won, Anderson ends up at 298, Isner 271. You know, considering it was 26-24 and there were only, what, six breaks of serve throughout the match, you would think that margin would be a little bit closer. And the fact that it's not points at least to me that uh anderson was really in control of this match once it got later in the fifth and it became a battle of fitness as opposed to you know playing tiebreaker tennis yep yep totally agree there yeah but still incredible first match incredible run for john isner you could tell in the press conference he was devastated and he had comments about whether they should have a fifth set tiebreak like they do at the U.S. Open as opposed to what they do at the other three slams where they play it out until someone gets a break. I mean, that's a fascinating argument and something you and I will definitely get into later on in this podcast. But let's talk about the other match first because, you know, again, that's a topic that deserves its own time. And so we'll do that for our changeover chat today. Um, but let's talk about the match that, while not as long, was certainly a higher level of tennis. We're talking about Novak Djokovic, the number 12 seed, taking out Rafa Nadal, the French Open champion, the number one player in the world. It seems like it's been him and Fed. You know, they've won the last six slams. They've dominated everything. And Djokovic takes out Nadal 6-4, This is despite Djokovic still working his way back from injury. I think it's safe to say he is all the way back now. Yeah, he looked very sharp. Um, especially when Nadal's been doing so well. And yeah, you know, it's grass, so Nadal's, it's not going to be peak Nadal, but at the same time, Nadal looked good. Djokovic looked even better. So yeah, he's coming back up. And, you know, maybe he's not quite to 2015, 2016 Djokovic, but he's close. Yeah. He's playing really well. I, I mean, it's so phenomenal. You look at some of the numbers from this match Djokovic, 125 out of 176 first serves, 71%. Nadal also 71%, but he has to hit 210 first serves. So right from there, you can see you know the fact that Nadal is hitting so many more first serves Djokovic it seemed like especially starting you know that first the first day of tennis was in every one of Nadal's service games his returns are clicking again he's willing to go down the line deep cross court deep down the middle
middle. It doesn't matter if you try and jam his forehand or his backhand. And I want to talk about some of the patterns from this match because Max Fleekner, our producer, knows, you know, he's all in on the Djokovic bandwagon, and I've obviously been a Murray man my entire life, and so those two things often conflict. And we always debate who's got the better backhand. The way Djokovic was able to handle the Nadal forehand, and yes, the match was on grass, but still, the way he's able to handle that heavy spin, you know, comfortably take that ball on the rise down the line, I don't know if any other player on the tour can do that. No, I don't think so. Uh, that's one thing, especially, uh, that people would talk about about Djokovic, you know, 2015, 2016, when he was just absolutely dominant, is you would look at the numbers and... First of all, he could step into that ball. I mean, he would take it inside the baseline almost every time when he was stepping in. And, you know, you didn't know if he was going back cross court, if he was going down the line. You know, he kept his rally ball so sort of, I mean, it's almost like a poker face for his stroke. He would go, like, through a match, and it'd be 51% cross court, 49% down the line. You just don't know where the guy's going to go. And so Nadal, you know, it works for some people when you can just, you know, pin him out on their backhand. However, this time, you know, you're going... You go to the Djokovic backhand, he can cut that angle off and rip it down the line, and then he's on Nadal's backhand, and, you know, he's got control of the point. And I think he did a phenomenal job of that in this in this match. There were so many points that he won just by cutting off that angle, taking it down the line, and gaining control that way. Well, part two of the tactical thing I noticed, and this involves the Djokovic backhand, because he's so willing to go down the line, you know, he's comfortable going backhand, forehand with Nadal. And when Nadal takes the ball early and goes forehand down the line, which, to his credit— he hit a ton of winners on in this match. It, you know, you look at it, Djokovic and Nadal both have 73 winners, 42 unforced errors. I think that's a testament to the fact of how well both guys played and the fact that either one of them definitely could have won this match. Um, but the fact that when Nadal would go down the line, Djokovic is so confident in his ability to cover that ball, hit an incredibly, you know, incredible depth on his forehand cross-court ball back and just be back at neutral in the rally. And I mean, these guys put forward a Herculean effort. Again, we mentioned this, 54.3 feet per point for Nadal, 51.4 for Djokovic. Those are the highest numbers I've seen all tournament. Um, you know, there were so few free points in this match. You had to earn everything. And, you know, to Nadal's credit, he really made Djokovic work on the second serves. Uh, you know, Djokovic only wins 47% of his second serve points, 24 of 51 on the match. But to Djokovic's credit, he goes 4 of 19 on break points in this match versus 4 of 11 for Nadal, who, again, did pretty well. Uh, but Djokovic is just in every service game. You can never count him out. He gets a few more free points than Nadal by throwing in 23 aces against Nadal's nine. But total points won, Djokovic 195, Nadal 191. Uh, all right, I'll ask it. This match versus Nadal versus Del Potro, if you, had to, you, know, if you got to rewatch one on ESPN3, which one are you clicking on first? I just 
think the contrast in styles makes when when Djokovic and Nadal play, it's so excellent. You have the heavy lefty spin of Nadal, a guy who's going to try and work you off the court, versus Djokovic, who's just like, you know, I am so flexible. I will get the ball deep no matter what angle my body is at. There is no way to hurt me on a tennis court. And what was really interesting, Nadal seemed to have a tactic, especially in that first day of play, of going to the drop shot, of, you know, trying to draw Djokovic in, or Nadal himself, you know, working a short angle and then following the ball in. And Nadal actually did an excellent job at the net, going 37 of 50 for 74%. You know, Djokovic did pretty well himself, 30, 44, 68%. But Nadal's ability to sneak forward is what, to me, will make him a a threat at Wimbledon moving forward, even if he loses, you know, a partial step or he's not able to snap the ball off quite as well. He's so comfortable moving forward now. And again, the level of play from these two, just incredible. Yeah, no, I, I like what you're saying, especially the net play with Nadal. That's one of the things about his game that's so overlooked and underrated. You know, we think of Nadal, you know, as he has a player, he spins a serve in, which he's changed a little bit in the last few years in his comeback, spins the ball in and just rips ground strokes, and that's how he feeds people. He just overwhelms. He's an absolute workhorse. He gets to every ball. He makes you get six, seven, eight more balls back. He doesn't care. Uh, but one thing is his touch. And nobody, and rarely do people talk about that when they think about Nadal, about that touch and getting to the net and finishing balls. He has great awareness in terms of cutting balls off and coming to the net. Um, and like you said, I think that's what's going to be able to keep him sort of around for so long, getting free points like that. Um, and it, it kept him in this match, absolutely. There were a lot of rallies where he felt Djokovic really had the upper hand. Nadal was able to sneak in and take a free point. Uh, I think that helped him. I completely agree with you. And so the last thing I want to mention with this match, and we've alluded to it, it was continued over two days of play, obviously with Isner and Anderson going 26-24 in the fifth. You know, they played, they wanted to play both matches on center court, and they didn't want to start the Djokovic-Nadal match, you know, prematurely on another court. Of course, Wimbledon also has the feature of an 11 p.m. curfew, and as well as the fact that Nadal and Djokovic were playing under the roof, it meant they had to finish the match under the roof. Um... Really, the whole situation was bungled by Wimbledon. And so I guess my question to you, Jamie, is what is your move there? Is it they've got to get rid of the 11 p.m. curfew? Is it at that point you have to start Nadal Djokovic at, you know, on a different court and then maybe move them or see what happens? Is it, uh, is it just the fact that we should have a fifth set tiebreaker? I mean, what is it to you that Wimbledon can do to ensure that the viewer has a better experience? Because, you know, for us viewers, one, the Isner, what, the Isner-Anderson match was over six hours, a little under seven hours. Uh, that's just a long block of TV, and so networks will cut away from it. And then, two, it's just a long time to watch that type of big man tennis. Uh, what's the solution to you? What did they do wrong, and what would you like to see moving forward? extend it 11 you know even for proper england just can't be that late <laughs> the queen uh, needs I mean, her sleep and then she's she, not that late no the queen um, needs her sleep and then she wants to watch her tennis yeah you know what okay i'm wrong <laughs> uh no i just i think you got to push that back if there's a curfew at all um it, it just it it did rob i don't know I, I think it robbed that match of what it could have been and don't get me wrong absolutely phenomenal match still but you know breaking up 
just chunking the match and uh, getting rid of the momentum and uh, I don't know. And it's it's a shame. Um, it's absolutely a shame. Can I? But, you know, you can I cut, Anderson is there. Sorry, can I cu- can I cut in real quick? Do you think yeah. if Nadal and Djokovic finish the match that night that Nadal wins, or do you think Djokovic holds on to his lead? Because when they finished, it was seven six. The third set had just ended. Huge rally for Djokovic, so he's up two sets to one at that point. But he did look physically worn down. So I'm just curious, what did you think? Yeah, he looked tired. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe that was somewhat mental because he knew about the 11 p.m. and he knows it's coming up. Um, and so maybe that part That's of that a very part good where point. He could, he could show it on his face because he knew they weren't going to keep playing, so that could be part of it. Um, but at the same time, you're right. He looked worn down, and Nadal did not look worn down, even though Djokovic did have that momentum. So, I don't know. In the end, it might be a wash because then you've got Djokovic coming off a set win, whereas now, you know, when you're coming back the next day, it's sort of a fresh start. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I mean, it went 10-8 in the fifth. So I don't know if you can really argue that that was a huge, you know, factor in it. But at the same time, I, I think it may have helped Djokovic because now he gets to go into a match where he does have the advantage. Maybe he set, lost some of the momentum, but he still has the 2-1 to set advantage. He's got the night's rest, and he gets to come back onto the court with that lead. You know, I don't know. I think that's a helpful situation for him. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I want to repeat your point because I think it's a fascinating point. You looked at how exhausted Djokovic was. You're probably right. He probably knows I can exert a little bit more tonight because after this set, I will get a chance to at least partially recover. And so I think that's a very fair point. I think that's something I, you know, I, I hadn't considered before. Definitely, Djokovic is able to give a little bit more as opposed to res, you know reserving himself for the thoughts of having to play a fourth and fifth set. Um, but yeah, I, again, these are battle of titans and such a high level of tennis. So incredible to see. Um, yes, fans are probably upset. Yes, the curfew rule is ridiculous. Play a match out. You, you should never curb a momentum. You know, there, a match should be played from start to finish. It should only be stopped if it's truly, you know, terrible weather. You know, if you can't, you can't play through rain, but, you know, Wimbledon has a roof, so that wouldn't have been an issue for this match. Um, I agree with you. It, you would have liked to see them finish it out at once. But, okay, let's move on to another match that was played today. This is, of course, the women's final where we saw Angelique Kerber, the number 11 seed, knock out Serena Williams, 6-3, 6-3. For Williams to have come back in this event made a Grand Slam final already. So incredible. It's such an impressive run, and her level throughout the two weeks was phenomenal. But in this match, the story has to be how well Angelique Kerber played because she just she tracked down everything. It, and yes, Serena missed a few more balls than you're used to seeing, but it didn't matter because even when she was on, the, everything was firing for Kerber. Yeah, and uh, absolutely, all credit to Kerber in this match. You know, uh, she got it done. She really did. She worked for every ball. She she made Serena hit a bunch of balls, and I think he saw some of the unforced errors there when William, that Williams hit. You know. Uh, she just missed a couple balls wide because Angie made her get one more, one more, one more back. And, and that sort of unrelenting pressure is just tough. It's tough on Serena, and you saw that. She missed and she missed balls that normally you wouldn't see her miss from the ground. Um, and, and I will say this. I mean, this, this is sort of a testament to Kerber throughout the entire tournament. You know, she just she's an absolute workhorse. There's no other way to say it, really. She will get every ball back. She will get low, um, and she will grind you down. And when there's a short ball, she'll pounce. Um, and she did that today really, really well. And, you know, she came up with big, big shots at big moments. Um, you know, there was one specifically comes to mind. Uh, it, was, it was 30 all 5-3. 
um, in the second set. And, you know, it was a weird, weird point, weird rally, uh, a bunch of different balls. There were a couple of moon balls either way. And then Kerber from behind the baseline just rips the winner down the line, lands on the back of the line, gives her a match point. And, you know, you just kind of see it in the face of Serena, like, all right, well, you know, and if she's coming up with these shots, yeah, I don't know what else I can do. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it's phenomenal for Kerber to get that first Wimbledon win. Um, and more than that, though, importance to the sport, it's great to see Serena back. And no, I don't think she's all the way back. Um, and I hope she will get to that level. But, you know, I've said this before, too, today. You know, what we saw was an average Serena versus someone who was really, really, really playing at a top level, and, and that's Kerber. Um, and so, you know, maybe if Serena's on a better day for her, she wins this match. Um, however, that's not the way it goes, and Kerber deserves it. So, um, you know, there you go. Well, I do want to say it's been such a pleasure for me to see people like Wozniacki, Halep, and Kerber take slam victories. You know, those are the three who have been, I feel like, criticized the most for not stealing more slams during the Serena era. And, you know, they all have success this year. Yes, Serena's away, but it was fun to see them succeed. And as you mentioned, you know, Kerber today, just so, so good. This is a physical match between these two and... Kerber averaging 41.9 feet per point, Williams 40.4, and yet, you know, despite all of that, you know, side-to-side tennis, Kerber in this match only five unforced errors. I mean, that's going to get the job done. You know, Serena hits 23 winners versus Kerber's 11, but 24 unforced errors versus Kerber's five. I mean, there were no free points from Angelique today, and she was just it, it was such a pleasure to watch. It really was a phenomenal match. I love Kerber's on-the-run passing shots. I'm so envious. Like, that is her ability to do that today is what stuck out the most to me. It down, whether it was at one point she was going cross-court a lot, and ESPN kept saying, oh, she's got to, or Chris Evers was like, now she's got to see if the line's going to work because Serena's going to sit on that. And then Kerber did go line, make the pass. It, like you mentioned, she, she just tracked down every ball. She was too good today. And so, yes, I'm so happy to see Serena return to this stage. Uh, but, you know, I, I was also just so impressed with Angelique Kerber. But, okay, let's move on to another match that I want to talk about from today. This is the men's doubles final where you had number seven seeds Jack Sock and Mike Bryan, the two Americans, take out Robin Clausen and Michael Venus, the 13 seeds, 6-3, 6-7, 6-3, 5-7, 7-5. You gotta love how Wimbledon still plays best of five in the double slams, and you know I don't want to break down this match too deep because you know it's, doubles points are pretty straightforward, especially on grass. There's a serve, there's a volley. Sometimes there's some great hands, and you know more often than not when it's at this level. But you know, I guess my two questions for this one. Mike Bryan, just so incredible. Now tied for the most Grand Slam wins all time in the open era in doubles. Uh, I think he has 17. But my real question is, uh, for Jack Sock, is he the best doubles player in the world right now? Oh, that's, uh, that's a tough one. He might be. Um, is he the best just straight-up serve volley doubles player? No. But is he the most valuable doubles player when he's on? I think so. Uh, the upside, nice. just you know, the forehand, the volleys, the power, the touch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he. I mean, he's dynamic. You can watch him. And the great thing about it, you know, singles. Jack Sock has not had a good year. I think we've you know sort of belabored that point. Um, but you know, you see him play doubles, and he just has an absolute passion, absolute fire. That's just different. It's absolutely different than what you see from him on a singles court. Um, and you know, he loves it, and he's getting fired up with Mike today. 
Um, and he, I don't know, you just love to see it. He was ripping the forehand, serving serving pretty well. You know, he was doing everything solid enough until he got that ball and just whack a forehand that, um, you know, the other side of the net simply couldn't handle. Um, so, you know, absolutely, just hats off to the Americans. Great to see that happen. Um, a little sad for Bob, you know, but at the same time, um, you know, Happens, right? Bob's probably the biggest loser of this Wimbledon, right? Now that his brother's got the lead and he's going to be number one for one week more than him, and you know the one more slam in men's doubles. I feel like Bob's got to be a little salty. Do you think? Yeah, that hurts. Do you think Sock has to ask permission? Like, hey, Bob, is it all right if I play with Mike? Yeah. Well, and you know, you saw even on like Sock's Instagram post, he's like, "Don't worry, just filling in." Just filling in. Yeah. He said it like six times, which is fair because he is. But well, at the same time, hey, you go out and win Wimbledon together. If, you know, and not bad. If Rothman wanted to play doubles with anyone else, he had better call me first. And I would never play anyone without consulting him immediately because, you know, you got to show some loyalty, especially when. That's just etiquette. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But again, you, the, the big question from this is will Jack's success in doubles you know, translate to the singles? Can this be a turning point in the season? He's got a little bit of momentum. He's got to be feeling confident, even though, as you mentioned, doubles suits his game more. It's quicker points, you know, less side-to-side, uh, more chance to show off your weapons as opposed to grind out and play you know, more disciplined tennis. Um, but he, it's such a pleasure to watch. You know, regardless of the singles success or lack thereof, enjoy Jack Sock, the doubles player, because it is really a once-in-a-generation talent to be able to do this. You know, some of the things he does on a doubles court. Yeah, and it's refreshing too, because you know it's kind of a break from just the classic serve, volley, return, get in sort of deal. Um, you know, you'll see him; he'll run all the way off the court to hit a forehand return, and he'll he doesn't mind staying back; he's comfortable. But then again, when he has to close, he knows he can come in, and he has absolutely phenomenal hands. Um, and so it's just it's just a pleasure to be able to see him do so many different things out there, and you know, just make it look. That's, that's sometimes just way too easy. Um, but, but yeah, hats off to Jack, and I hope this does sort of spur him on through the year. Um, so I guess we'll see. That's all I can say there. Yeah, absolutely. We will definitely be watching, and hopefully he plays doubles as well in some of these singles tournaments. You know, it shouldn't help. You know, hopefully he doesn't lose focus because of it. But I don't know. It's just so fun. You, I would play doubles if I was a singles player as well. I mean, yeah, it wears you down a little bit, but doubles is just so explosive. It's so exciting. It is my favorite form of tennis, so I'm all in on Jack Sock, the doubles player. But okay, let's do our men's final preview. Again, number 12 seed Novak Djokovic taking on number 8 seed Kevin Anderson. You're looking at their career head-to-head. Djokovic leads 5-1 overall, their last meeting coming at the 2015 Wimbledon round of 16, where Djokovic took out Anderson 6-7, 6-7, 6-1, 6-4, 7-5. Hopefully that will be some sort of prelude to this, you know, this tournament here, and it doesn't involve both guys cramping because they've had less than 24 hours to recover. Uh, but, Jamie, what are your opening thoughts on this match? What will you be looking for? What does each player have to do to win? And then in the end, who do you got? Well, I think first, one of the big keys is for Anderson to put pressure on Djokovic in the return game. Um, because we know Djokovic is going to put pressure on Anderson's serve game as well. You know, he's serving incredibly well, but no matter who you are, Djokovic will get points on your serve. Um, and that's actually what happened today, um, you know, with Nadal, especially in that fifth set. How many times did Nadal start a service game down love 15? And, you know, Anderson's serve is bigger and more dominant than Nadal's, sure. 
But at the same time, it's just sort of that mentality of being able to get points on the other person's serve and put that pressure back on them. And so I think that's one thing I'm going to be looking for is, you know, I expect it from Djokovic, but I need to see it from Anderson in order for him to have any sort of chance, which leads me to my prediction, which is Djokovic. Now there um, it is. Yeah. Someone call Mastikoyak. His upset finally came through. Oh, huge upset alert brewing. Djokovic if you had to guess... What did Matt do when Djokovic took out Nadal? Did he give a little fist pump? Was he upset because it ruined his Federer-Nadal final? What do you think is going through his mind right now? I don't know. He's probably just, he's probably just you know, happy. He's like, oh, man, my, my little underdog story is going through, <laughs> and it's, I'm just so happy and teary-eyed for him. I'll have to get him on the phone sometimes. Yeah, yeah I could tell he'd be like, now, Alex, I did say Djokovic was the upset prediction. I did say he was the dark horse, but you got to give credit to both Nadal and Djokovic. Nadal and Djokovic played well. You know how Matt likes to do his thing. I miss you, Matt, obviously. This is my way of saying we'll have to get you back on for the final as well. Uh, but, yeah, you, you talk about some of the things, you know, their paths to get here, who might be more worn down. Djokovic, you, you have to wonder how his body's hold, holding up just because he was out with injury for so long. But he's beaten Zabios, He's beaten Edmund. He's beaten Hachanov. He's beaten Nishikori. He's beaten Nadal. Uh, I, I don't remember who he beat in his first match, and it's not in front of me, but, you know, one other match as well. And, yeah, his last uh, two matches, Nishikori's a four-set match. You know, obviously this Nadal one's 10-8, but you look at Anderson's body of work. You know, he takes out Seppi, Cole Schreiber. Uh, he takes out Monfils in a very physical 7-6, 7-6, 5-7, 7-6 match. Then you have the emotional thriller against Federer, 13-11 in the fifth. Now you have against Isner, 26-24 in the fifth. And even though Djokovic had to play today, you have to imagine in terms of being more worn down Anderson's got to be feeling it at this point. And so for Djokovic, if he is feeling up to the task, the key is obviously make this a physical match. Keep pelting returns at the Anderson uh, feet. You know, don't be afraid. Step in on that second serve because Anderson does hit it noticeably softer than the first serve. Uh, you know, don't let Anderson whack you around the court with his ground strokes because he will do that if you, you know, try and chop with your backhand slice and whatnot. And like you mentioned, Djokovic just has to be the favorite. His level has returned to maybe not his peak form, but right close to it. He is playing good enough tennis to certainly be a Grand Slam champion. And so I agree with you. If I had to guess, I'm going to say Anderson does steal a set, but just he goes down two sets to one and then the legs fail him. And so I'm going to say Djokovic in four as well. I can see it. Yeah, and I, I don't know. Let's Let's play, though, devil's advocate. If Anderson takes the match, what is you know what does that match look like? Anderson's going to win this. 
It's got to be a lot of big shots. And honestly, just truthfully, he's got to be on fire. Look, I'm no IMB stats for the match, but if I had to guess, he's got to serve over 75% on his first serves. He's got to convert 50% of his net points, which, as we've talked about all week, Anderson is not the most comfortable volleyer. And, of course, Djokovic has as good of, if not the best, passing shots in the history of the game. So it's going to be tough to put pressure on him. Then again, you know, we could see a physically worn-down Djokovic. We could see him lollipopping in second serves and Anderson stepping up, you know, taking advantage of those second serves if Djokovic's first serve is off. And yeah, Anderson's going to have to maintain that same sort of ratio of winners to unforced air that he did against Isner. You know, if he can hit almost 100 more winners than unforced airs like he did in that match, I imagine he's winning. But, you know, that's a tall task. What was that? Oh, yeah, that would be the dryer. Yeah. But yeah, it's going to be a tall task, no pun intended, for Anderson. Um... Hopefully we see some royalty in the box as well, because this is going to be a fun one. And If we see Djokovic back at the top of the mountain, the way he's playing, the way Del Potro's playing, the way some of these next-gen guys are just itching to break through, and then obviously you have Federer and Nadal, the two titans, um, maybe a returning Murray as well, could be a fascinating U.S. Open. And so it's been an incredible Wimbledon. This final is just the cherry on top of what was a wonderful strawberries and cream of an event. Um, Oh, come on, no laugh for the British pun. Definitely Westoff, give me a da dum But okay, let's do our last segment of the show. And again, we want to thank all of you listeners who tuned in this week to all of our Wimbledon coverage, you know, between myself, Jamie, Matt, uh, Rothman, Fliegner, Westoff. We've, it's been a fun effort, and we've loved bringing these pods to you guys. But let's do everyone's favorite segment of the show. This will be our last changeover chat of the Wimbledon tournament so Westoff I need a long drum roll please it's time for this week's changeover chat the changeover chat yeah usually Rothman does that Jamie and I was going to ask you to do it but I just wasn't sure if your soprano tones would translate well over the phone Yeah, maybe next time indeed. But okay, let's talk about the subject that was probably the biggest takeaway from the men's semifinal round. It is the question that is eating up tennis Twitter. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone has their own takes. I want to hear your take, and then I'm obviously going to give my take. But Jamie, should all Grand Slam tournaments convert to the U.S. Open method of a fifth set tiebreaker? Ooh, no, yeah, don't just give me a yes or no. I, the people it's, demand an explanation. I, I got to give a one-word answer there because I feel so strongly about it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think there are a lot of reasons, one of which I think is it just makes, I don't know, it just, I think it takes some of the excitement out of the game, first of all. And, you know, I, it is annoying when you have to sit around and watch it, you know, 97 to 95. It's sad, I get it. Um, but I also don't like the fact that, you know, that, that match – Let's use Isner and Anderson, for example. I don't like the fact that that match could have been won with all tiebreak sets. Or in this case, 1-6-4. So, okay, four of them were tiebreaks. I, I just don't think, at that point, if you're playing Isner, you might as well just spin your racket and say, okay, let's play a few tiebreaks and then you can move on. Um, I, I think that's kind of obnoxious. I understand that's part of the game. You know, you have tiebreaks in some sets and he's good at those. But I like the idea, you know, 
the sport of tennis, it's, it's one of those things. There's no, there's no timer. There's nothing like that. You know, there's no game clock. You have to finish out the match. And so I, I think that keeping that fifth set authentic with no tiebreak means that someone has to finish out the match for real. You can't just have a tiebreak where, hey, you might get a spray point and then you keep serving well and boom, there you go. You win 8-6 or whatnot. I like the fact that you have to finish it in the traditional game style. I don't know. And it wouldn't be much as much of a problem if Wimbledon you know, didn't absolutely insist on stopping at 11 p.m. So uh, there are a couple of things I want to say about this. Number one, I think is most important. The Isner-Anderson match is the worst-case scenario for yep. a Wimbledon semifinal. You have two big servers, guys who are—it's very difficult to break. You know, Isner, to that point, up to the semifinal, had not been broken all tournament. Obviously, he's not the best returner, and we have someone who serves as well as Anderson. It's just a confluence of— skills and lack thereof skills perhaps that makes it you know just worst case scenario for well your dryer definitely oh, in. Is it, what what are you doing what do you get you wet your pants getting up right now to do it it just like keeps cycling before someone gets up the nadal Djokovic match had you freezing everywhere and so you wet your pants yeah and then i didn't even wash much dried them all or is that leftovers from your birthday it's just you had puke everywhere That's funny. I like it. But yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, not to say it was a bad viewing experience because at a certain level, you just have to admire the physicality of these guys. Anyone who says tennis isn't a marathon or isn't a physical sport, you're lying to yourself because to be out there in that heat for six plus hours and hit over 250 serves, you know, have to have 128 mile per hour bombs coming at you for that long and maintain a focus and not lose your mind. So incredible from both of these guys. But I heard an interesting proposal. You know, I understand the idea. Fan, you know, the common fan is not going to watch a tennis match for seven hours. They're just not. Especially if you don't follow the game, you don't play the game. If you tune into ESPN and it's the same match for six hours, you're going to lose interest. And so, a proposal was floated. The idea of what if you switch the majors to two out of three sets? But that third set, instead of a tiebreaker, was just play till someone breaks serve. And I thought that was very interesting. Uh, I don't know where I stand. Because you think of some of the greatest matches of all times. Nadal-Fed or Fed-Rodic or you know this Djokovic match. The Nadal-Delpo match. Just so many great matches. Isner-Mahout, which maybe not highest quality, but an iconic <laughs> match for sure. Yeah, But so many of these matches involve these fifth sets going the distance so you have to wonder you know is it better for the game to adjust and draw in more fans or is it better to keep this classic approach and to maintain this sort of uh this sort of energy and i behind uh the you know the energy that goes with a fifth set match and the allure of that draw i don't know noah rubin said they need a fifth set tie break Mm, i'm not ready to get rid of the fifth set yet but if they wanted to put in a fifth set tiebreak, I wouldn't hate it. The truth is, I guess, I don't really care. If the players are for it, if the players think, you know, if we see Anderson and Djokovic out there just dead tomorrow, that neither guy can move at all because Djokovic didn't have a day's rest and Anderson has played, you know, two fifth set matches in a row, then yes, we need to really consider. But if these guys are able to recover and we're able to get a high quality final, then f*** it. Like, keep it as it's going. Why ruin something that, even though may not appeal to the common fan, 
is truly what makes tennis incredible. You know, how many people who may not have watched the entire match are now going to check out the highlights and see, you know, oh, I want to see, is this Anderson guy who I had never heard of before? You know, how did he do? Oh, I see he beat Federer as well. Maybe this is a guy I need to follow. And, you know, in the it doesn't in the long run hurt the game, in my opinion. And so as long as something isn't actively hurting the game, and, you know, I haven't seen the ratings. I don't know if ESPN saw a precipitous decline as it got past 10-all or not. But unless it's affecting it directly, I see no no reason to change it. Unless, again, the players are against it. Yeah, no, I have, I agree with most of that, actually. You know, and I have two thoughts on this. First of all, with the idea of two out of three with no third set breaker, I think that is definitely not a good idea. Um, because, like you said, there's so many just phenomenal five-set matches. I mean, those are the ones that make the classic list, right? Um, and also, most of the time, most of the time, this fifth-set tiebreak thing isn't a big issue, right? This is a very small percentage of the matches that actually, you know, bring up this sort of discussion. And, yeah, obviously, they're with people like Isner. Um, but, you know, most of the time, these matches don't even involve that fifth set going the distance, or if it does, you know, it might end a few games after until someone gets a break. Um, and so I think that's one part of it is just like, look, at the end of the day, you're trying to change a rule for something that is really a pretty minute, and when it does happen, it's kind of a special thing, and so I don't think it's that big of a deal or enough to freak out about. Second, I don't like the idea of just trying to make concessions to the rules simply to appease, to hypothetically appease people who you don't think will watch for six hours. You know, if a match goes six hours, it goes six hours. If that's how long it takes to get done, that's how long it takes. You know, that's sort of the beauty of the game. It can, you can have Federer win a set in 15 minutes, or you can have a match go seven hours. And I, I, I don't know, I think that's part of tennis and taking that away is just doing it to service. Well, uh, I mean, the, the the thing is, as much as I want to agree with that point, because there is something about the purity of the game, even the standard, you know, three out of five set match, let's say it's the Nadal... Dude, well, you, dude your dryer is having a fit. It really... It really I, don't, I don't get it. I don't what I think that's its way of saying it prefers two out of three sets. I really do. Um Dude, but I think this thing can freak off and throw itself out the window. Dude. <laughs> I don't get it. The door is open. Everything's off. Why is it like what what could possibly be going on? Well, I'll have to remember uh never mind. I'm just gonna move real quick. No, you're fine. I just think it's difficult because even the standard, you know, let's say that Nadal-Djokovic match goes four sets and, you know, let's say they play it out and Nadal or Djokovic ends up winning and it's still over a four-hour match. Fans don't have attention spans of four hours. Yes, anyone who is watching the entirety of that match will watch any tennis match. And sure, people will tune in throughout the match, but... People don't have four-hour attention spans. It's the same issue we see with baseball. You know, baseball games, they add a shot clock to the pitchers because people want to see these games be shortened. They're taking away timeouts at the NBA because they want to see the end of games be shortened. It's ridiculous that the last two minutes take over, you know, a half hour. And so it's certainly something to consider. You have to worry about the long-term growth of the sport. You know, I'm a radical. I'm willing to say throw in no ad to a random tournament. Let's say at the City Open they play no ad. Let's just, let's just see a little excitement and sudden death points. I'm totally fine with experimenting with the format a little bit. Um, 
I don't, again, I, I'm not sure where I lie on this issue. I need to do more studying. I need to know what the average fan and how long they tune into a match on ESPN and see things of that nature. So I reserve the right to come back to this. But for now, I'll side with you, Jamie. Keep the fifth set, but as a compromise, incorporate the... Uh, maybe when it's only Isner and Rayonich playing. You yeah, have, right. yeah, you have to have a fifth set. a special list. Yeah. <laughs> We, the ATP Players Tour comes up, like the union says, here are the six players who are allowed fifth set tie breaks. Yeah, right. No, I, I, it's ridiculous. Who's, it's really it's just a matter of, you know, if you see Isner in that situation, you're like, oh, God. Well, real quick, it's only fitting since it's a changeover chat. Who's on that list of players who are allowed to now play fifth set tiebreakers just for the sake of the fans? Well, I don't even, well, for the sake of the fans, I think you put Isner on there. But honestly, I hate it because I think it gives him too much of an edge, whereas, you know, it gives him an out instead of actually having to last to the set. But regardless, that's another discussion. Uh, Isner's on there. Uh, God, I guess you got to put Anderson on there now because, you know, he shows he can hold. <laughs> that's I, true. I guess Milos is on there. Who else is annoyingly big? Karlovic? Uh, yeah, Karlovic. I mean, he's like nine feet tall. you got to put him on there. Maybe it's just a height thing. Should we preemptively put Opelka, or are we going to give him a chance? <laughs> it really we're heightists it's unbelievable the bias we're showing um yeah i i don't know it, it, it certainly is a topic that should be studied further and we will be addressing it as we move throughout this year maybe we'll see at the u.s open stark contrast maybe we see isner pull out a ton of you know fifth set breakers and we say no that's an unfair advantage like you mentioned or maybe you know there there's just upsets and maybe Djokovic and Nadal play another thriller in the fifth and it's seven six and we wish they could have gone ten eight. So it's certainly a topic I look forward to examining more. But okay, uh, we'll wrap it up there since you know we're going to get this pot out a little bit late. And so we hope you're able to listen to this before the final. If not, I'm sure it was an excellent Djokovic victory. I'm sure he played phenomenal, and we look forward to talking about that in our next podcast. Uh, obviously, Jamie, thank you for sticking with me all week. It's been so fun to get you on these podcasts, and you know we've been scheming behind closed doors. And obviously, you'll be a big part of the Great Shot Podcast moving forward. But you know, hell of an event, right? Great middle, you know, port, great way to rein in into the hard court season, the the end run, you know, the final sprint of the ATP year, right? Absolutely, you're seeing players come back. You know, even if it's Djokovic going all the way to the finals. Even if it's, you know, someone like Warinka who's just winning one round, but, you know, they're, they're getting back. And so it's really inspiring to see a lot of these players, Serena, Djokovic, Warinka, whoever, um, sort of coming back on tour. This is a big season for that. And hopefully the U.S. Open shows even more for it. So, you know, I'm excited and uh, hope we get to talk about this stuff more, you know. Well, into the then let me tell you this now and give a little sneak peek for our fans. Go to livestream.com backslash ATP and start watching those Winnetka highlights because that's what we're talking about next week. I have so many takes from the Winnetka tournament. I've actually forced myself to stop watching those highlights so I don't get distracted, but that's what we're breaking down next week. So we're going to make a bit of a jump, you know, back to the Challenger Tour, but we're going to get to talk about some of our favorite next-gen players. So, you know, hopefully we'll get you back on for that, yeah? Absolutely. All right, then one last time for Jamie McDonald, for our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff, who have a f- job to do, as always. For Jamie's dryer in the background for really disliking the idea of switching from three out of five to two out of three. Uh, for the Benunis who hosted me tonight, and that's where I'm recording from, so i got to give them a shout-out. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. And Jamie, what do we say to our fans? Hey. Oh, I love it, and we will see you all next week. Thanks, Jamie.